0: Well, let's turn now to um, Mark chapter 11, 12 and 13. And here we have, um, I, I want to get us into this by thinking about Jesus and the end of the world. Because a theme throughout this section is the coming king, the coming judgment, the end of the world. There was a time when scholars and historians were trying to work out who's the real Jesus behind the religion and the myths, as they called them, and the the build-up of of church dogma and tradition. What's the historical Jesus? And 19th century, 20th century modern people ended up deciding that the true Jesus was something like a a mirror image of themselves. He was a rational, wise philosopher who was sharing his wise wisdoms on... uh, uh, the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of humanity and the duty to love others um, in God's world, or something along those lines. And that salvation really was a God moment when you were dawned to realise the divineness of being. (laughs) In other words, they, in their scholarship, found the Jesus that they wanted to find, didn't they? (laughs) Um, But soon after all those people began sort of arguing that, Others began to look back at the history, not necessarily even um, conservative Christian, you know, fully believing the Bible as God's um, uh, inerrant word, Um, but they said, you know what? I don't think you can get rid of the the end-of-the-world dimension of Jesus. The historical Jesus, whatever he was, even if he's not the son of God of faith, even if he's not the Christ of faith, he was an apocalyptic preacher, he was Jewish, 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 with the Jewish hopes and the Jewish expectations of an end of the world, and so they'd see something like the passage that Cam read for us. This what's called the um, the Olivet Apocalypse. It's like you have the uh, um, the Apocalypse of John, the Book of Revelation, or the uh, the weird writings of Ezekiel, Daniel. So here's Jesus' uh, Book of Revelation. That they'd say, this is just you can't. Um, extract historically the apocalyptic dimension of this ancient Galilean preacher, Nazarene preacher, yeah? And they were right, <laughs> and definitely when you come fully with the whole Bible, you do see that, yes, Jesus is a wise teacher and he's a down-to-earth human speaking about love and, and God's love for the whole world, And he is an end-of-the-world preacher. And here in Mark's Gospel, we get to a point where he's not just a miracle worker, he's not just the Messiah, he's not just one saying, welcome the little ones and don't cause them to stumble. He's saying, the end is coming, get ready. Keep watch. Any minute now, three headings we'll look at. and It's a briefer one tonight. Um, Jesus, the coming king, the cursing of Israel. Secondly, the end of the world. Thirdly, Jesus, the coming king, the cursing of Israel. The end of the world. Jesus, the coming king. Here's Jesus, the Messiah, coming to the seat of his kingdom. God's people's kingdom was centred on Jerusalem, the capital, which is also where God reigned from his temple, from his holy seat um, in the, in the centre of the temple, Yeah, to what is, was ceremonially called Zion, by the Psalms and the prophets, the place where God's temple is, God's dwelling place, the theological centre of the world. And now Christ is coming to Jerusalem. He arranges a ride in, chapter 11, verses 1 to 7. He plans it to fulfil a prophecy. Jesus reads his Bible. He reads Zechariah 9, which says, When the Messiah comes, he'll come in meekly and humbly on a donkey, a humble king. Um, and so he arranges the getting of the donkey to ride in on the donkey to fulfill. You see, sometimes prophecies are fulfilled in remarkable, miraculous, kind of coincidence proof, that kind of thing, where it's like, how could, that, how could we have planned for Jesus to have been born of a virgin and born in Bethlehem and, um, and yet grow up in Nazareth and all these kinds of things? Um, but then there's others where you go, well, because that's my calling, then I will... Act in line with that, and so he hears he's fulfilling, consciously fulfilling. So that's Mark 11, verses 1 to 7. Yeah, uh, he comes in on the donkey. Uh, they went and found a colt 11, verse 4, um, out in the street, tied at a doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there said, What are you doing untying that colt? and they answered that Jesus had told them to. But people let them go, and when they put the colt, uh, to Jesus and threw the cloaks over it, he sat on it. And many others spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches and they cut in the fields. And those went ahead, and those followed shouted, Hosanna! That means, Save us, Lord! Uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And here he is, he's arriving now, the king arriving on the donkey, greeted by people who know all of his great deeds and that he was baptised by John. They celebrate and welcome him, comes into Jerusalem. Here he is, the king has arrived just as promised and verse 11 just kind of looks around a bit and goes home. (laughs) It's a weird anticlimax. Jesus arrives, is greeted victoriously, looks around a bit and says, oh, everything seems closed. Do you want to, oh, we'll just come back tomorrow then. Yeah, okay, we'll just get some Uber Eats or something. It's a strange, again, Mark does this. He, he creates these little tension points as he tells the story. And this is another one of those, right? And this odd anticlimactic point. We'll come back to that. Uh, Jesus acts as one with great authority through this section. He scandalises the leaders. He astonishes the people so that they demand. 11 verse 27. They arrive in Jerusalem and while Jesus was walking in the courts, the chief priests, the teachers, the law elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. Who gave you authority to do that? They're seeing that he's coming, claiming great authority. A coming king has come to his people. He says he is the beloved son of, the heir of the master. 12 verse 6, he had one, uh, in Jesus' story he says, the owner of the vineyard had one left, a son whom he loved, and he sent him last of all, saying they will respect my son. He's the beloved son, the heir of the master. He is the rejected stone who will become a glorious capstone of God's great building work. The stone the builders rejected, verse 10 of chapter 12, has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvellous in our eyes. He is a glorious capstone to God's building work. He is the Messiah who is greater even than the great King David. Look there in uh, 12, verse 35. When Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Spirit, declares about the Messiah... The Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah is my Lord. So the Lord God said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David calls the son of David, the Messiah, Lord. (laughs) How can the Messiah then just be his son, Jesus is saying. The son of David to come, the great Messiah, will be greater than David even. That's who Jesus is. He's the one whose good news announcement will be proclaimed across the whole world. 13 verse 10 the gospel must first be preached to all nations. 13 verse 10. He is the one who will come with the glory of God in fulfilment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Look at 13 verse 26. At that time men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he'll send his angels and gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. He is the one whose words, like scripture itself, will endure longer than the created universe. Thirteen, thirty-one, heaven and earth. The universe will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Here's the coming king, mighty to save, compassionate to save, eternal, divine, fulfilling scripture coming to judge. He comes and he looks around at the capital city of where God's promises are to be fulfilled and he's not impressed. told you it's a bit quicker tonight. Here we are already in the second point, the cursing of Israel, the hope of Israel, the hope of vindication, of revenge and restoration. That was what they were hoping, that God would rescue Israel, restore them, make them greater than ever, a world dominion of God's blessing and peace, judgment upon their enemies, who at the moment are especially Caesar and all his centurions and governors. They, Israel, their hope was if we're just patient, and faithful with our law and our our, um, our ritual and our ceremony, then all would be good. The kingdom would come, the Messiah would reign, we would enter glory with might and peace and joy and justice and blessing. But a little bit like those awkward Oscar ceremony moments where someone thinks that they've won or gets wrongly announced as having won and stands up and, and waves and claps and comes up the front and then it's like, Oh my goodness, actually, it's not for you. It's for someone else. Go and sit back down. They've got to go all the way back down. Worst thing ever. Just like someone who thinks they're in for an award when they're not, who are sure they're a shoe-in when they're not. There's an awkward moment. Remember how Jesus entered in on the donkey, greeted as the coming king, and then stopped, looked around and left? Mark sets that up as a little dramatic pause. And then before he comes back to that story of Jesus' evaluation of Jerusalem, we get an interesting little acted negative miracle. Mark 11, come back to Mark 11, verse 12 to 14. Here's one of the few cases where Jesus doesn't uh, do a miracle to do good, but does a miracle to do something destructive. The next day, as Jesus was leaving Bethany to go to Jerusalem once more, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it wasn't the season for figs. And he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. And on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the temple and the money changers and the benches of the ceiling... You see? You see how this encounter with the fig tree then becomes a symbol of his encounter with Jerusalem. The fig tree, a common sign of God's people in the Old Testament, that each person would sit under their own vine, their own fig tree, a mark of the blessing of God. Here, this fig tree, when the Messiah comes, is not ready for him. It's caught unawares, out of season, unfruitful. Even though it's promising fruit with its leaves, it's mere show it has no fruit. We, um, <laughs> my wife's a really keen nerdy gardener. She loves gardens. And it's just she, Always there's a new book about gardens. I don't know what else there is to learn, but this, God made a lot of plants. We went and visited this really, um, it's like a private botanical garden. It's pretty much down, uh, I can't even think off the top of my head. The road to Signet, uh, is it Nichols Rivulet, that kind of way. It's called Craigie Wood or something like this and the guy, this old salty piratey guy who used to be like a, a sawmill operator and now is a gardener, he, he walked us around his gardens and we actually came to a, the fig tree there um, and, and there was like one fig left on it and he goes, yeah, this one's towards the end of its life. Last year, he's like he's in his flanny, he's got a sauce on his things, his old grey beard and he goes, yeah, last year it really went for it. I really went for it, you know. He's kind of in and out of this Aussie accent and talking Latin names for plants, that kind of character, right? Really, all leaves, all the figs everywhere. Um, and then, there, and that was it. That was the last time. Now it's just effed. They just walked off, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was really just a cute moment. Yeah, that, so he's going, Here's the Estinus Bibiscum and the Wixinum Bibliston, and this lots of figs last year, and now it's just effed. <laughs> hilarious um but but here here what what old mate said about that fig tree in his little private botanical gardens yeah jesus wouldn't use these words but that's what's true not only for this fig tree but for israel itself yeah maybe all buzzing and humming with activity and religious ceremonies but well we won't use that language it's not in a good state he comes in and he sees all this activity going on in the temple Technically well meaning, these markets were about exchanging money for sacrifices. But the problem is that they're, they're running this market in a place that was supposed to be the court for those, the God fearers and the Gentiles, those who weren't the Jews, to come and draw near to Israel's God. And they're just filling it up with an exchange, a whole elaborate exchange economy for the Jewish sacrifices further into the temple, he says this was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. That's what it was supposed to be. 11 verse 17, a house of prayer for all nations. In this court where you're running this market, this is supposed to be a a place where the God-fearers drew close. You've made it. Here's the bigger deal. It's not just the market that's the issue. He's he's causing uh, a dramatic stir in the temple to make a deeper point. You've made it a den of robbers. That's a quote from Jeremiah 7 when Jeremiah is rebuking Israel for saying, You think you're fine that God won't hold you accountable for your unbelief and your sin? You think you're fine because you've got the temple got the temple, got the temple, got the temple, got the temple, got the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. Can't touch me, got the temple of the Lord. You think that you're fine because you've been circumcised on the eighth day. You think you're fine because you're a child of Abraham. You think you're fine because you've got the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. And he says, yeah, but you're using the temple like a hideout, like Shredder's Lair, if you know the <laughs> Ninja Turtles movies. It's, it's this lovely place where you're hiding as criminals, thinking you'll get away with it. And it won't. Like in Jeremiah's day, the temple got demolished by the Babylonian armies, ripped to to pieces, and all the treasures stripped from it and taken off to the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. The temple's not magical, it's not a magic charm. It's a mere symbol calling you to faith in the living God, which you've abandoned. Jesus says the same thing's happened all over again. You've been brought back from Babylon, you've built a new temple, and you think we're fine, we've got the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's just shredder's lair, it's just a den for robbers, it's a hideout, and it's not going to work. God's on to you. If you don't have true faith and true godliness in the living God, having the temple with all this activity is like a fig tree with leaves but nothing else. Yeah. True nature is revealed. Israel is found wanting. When the king comes, Israel is found wanting. And so he tells this parable of um, of the vineyard, um, of, of a farmer who owns a vineyard, puts it in trust of others. That's God giving Israel and its temple and its ceremony and its promises entrusted to them. Yeah? And then, then God leaves them with it and then he sends messengers like the prophets and they don't listen to the messengers, they kill them. And finally he sends his son. That's Jesus now arriving in Jerusalem. The son is here and Jesus is prophesying as he tells this story. He says, in the story they say, if we can kill the son, we get to keep everything. That's what you're going to do to me. Just a couple of days warns this story that warns them of their unbelief and it makes them angry <laughs> he says you're going to reject God and reject his promises by killing me um, but in the end God will be glorified 12 verse 10 and so they go yeah okay well let's kill him then 12 verse 12 they look for a way to arrest him because he'd spoken this parable against them they were careful how they did it though because of the crowd Israel is found wanting. At the end of the chapter even there's a rebuke of the leaders of Israel contrasted to a poor widow still seeking to honour God. He warns against the corruption of Israel's leaders. 12 verse 43, calling the disciples to him. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. They're not giving generously and potentially they're driving her to poverty. They're failing to care for the widow which Israel's leaders were supposed to care for. He's declaring judgment on the people of God. The end is near. The end of the world, in a way, is coming for Israel. The king has come, and it's not all glory and blessing. They are to be disowned, exposed, abandoned. So what's their response? Contrition? Sackcloth and fasting, as we see at other points in the Old Testament? No. It's anger and outrage, and it's testing they begin to test him uh, back in 11 verse 27. They arrived in Jerusalem and while Jesus was walking the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? And Who gave you with this authority? They begin to test him with a string of questions. Really the rest of 11 and 12 um, is a string of these challenges to Jesus. You know, Where do you get your authority from? Jesus won't answer the question because he says you're not really interested in God's authority at all, are you? He kind of calls their bluff in chapter 11. They ask him a question about uh, marriage and the resurrection, the Sadducees who have a different theological position and Jesus exposes their unbelief in the Bible and their unbelief in, in God's power. Uh, they ask a question to try and trap him in his uh, patriotic loyalty about paying taxes and Jesus gives that famous answer about giving to Caesar what's to Caesar's and God's what's God's to say actually it's not an either or it's neither patriotic rebellion nor complete um, capitulation to, to Roman um, uh, uh, betrayal of Israel. But there is, there is a wise course, just like there was for Daniel, just like there was for Moses, just like there was for the converted leper, Naaman. They're asking questions um, about the greatest commandment. And we get that famous teaching of Jesus about the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And the second greatest commandment to love your neighbour as yourself. A tying together of the scripture. You know what? The scriptures aren't all about the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They're not all about the food laws and the circumcision and the Sabbath. Throughout the scriptures, don't you get the prophets say? I'm not interested in your strict Sabbath keeping. Instead, I want you to take a rest from injustice and wickedness and idolatry. I'm not interested in just fasting from food. Fast from wickedness and greed and and filthy talk. What really pleases God is not sacrifices and offerings and horns and hoofs of bulls and goats. It's a pure heart. It's a broken spirit. That's what God's interested in. He's just picking up the actual through line of scripture Love, love to God, love to neighbour that leads to repentance and faith in God and active service to our neighbour. They ask these questions to test him, not because they want answers, but because they're trying to trap him and trying to test him. Twelve, thirteen. they sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. That's what they're interested in. And they just get angry at him. They're angered at him, 11 verse 18. The chief priests of the teachers of the law heard this, began to look for a way to kill him for they feared him. 12 verse 7, uh, in the parable Jesus describes them, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. 12 verse 12, they looked for a way to arrest him because he'd spoken this parable against them, but they were scared of the crowd and how to go about it. Here's the glorious coming king, the promised king. They are rejected people, disobedient people, murderous people. And as he leaves now, and in a sense shakes the dust, as he told them to do in the villages of, of Israel now, as he is kind of shaking his dust for the capital. So the judgment is coming. I've come and I'm not as the saviour, I'm coming as the judge. He then opens a window to show his disciples the end of all things. Final point, as we come to a close, for the future judgment, the final hope, the end of the world. Because the apostles just point out the glory of this second temple and its, its magnificence. Oh, look at these buildings, Lord, they, they say, pointing them out to him in 13 verse 1. And Jesus says, all this greatness, it's coming to an end. It's going to be thrown down. There won't be anything left. This is over. The judgment is coming for Jerusalem. And so they say, well, when? What are the signs that we know that this will happen? Jesus' answer, as was read for us in Mark 13, comes in three parts. The first part is uh, general signs for the end of the age. General signs. What he calls the birth pangs. They're the indications that we're in the last time. Not the very, very end. It's not the, oh, the end is next week. Let's get out a whiteboard chart and a PowerPoint slide and I'll talk you through who exactly... Who exactly is going to be, you know, is Trump going to be the Antichrist or something, you know, and I've got all the diagrams. It's not, uh, he's saying, no, this is just this. Is what, this is what now, the, whenever these things happen now, you, they're reminders to you. Not just that the world is fallen, but that the end is soon. They're like those first contractions to say, get ready, we'll we need to be calling the midwife or go on to the hospital, whatever the plan is. Um, the end is still to come he says in 13 verse 7, yeah? If people say there's the Christ here, there's the Christ there. No, 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 don't don't worry. Don't be deceived, 13 verse 5, he says. Many will say this and that. There'll be wars. There'll be rumours of wars, 13 verse 7. The end is still to come. There'll be nations rising up, nations falling down, kingdoms against kingdoms and earthquakes and famines. It's the birth pains, yeah? So these are the kinds of things that will happen. 9 to 13 particularly says his followers will face suffering. The gospel's going to spread, but as it spreads, there'll be suffering, And and, and God will be with you, even in the suffering. He'll give you words to say, even under pressure. Suffering will mark this age. Not comfort, not popularity, not convenience. But God's gospel will still spread nonetheless. That's the first thing he says. He he doesn't answer when. He says, look, hey, this age is going to be like this. Here's how it's going to play out. Yeah? Secondly, he speaks about a particular time of trouble in verses 14 to 23. This is where this the abomination that causes desolation gets talked about, coming from Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 11. Let the reader understand, Jesus says, quoting Daniel, and the reader doesn't really understand as uh, he's trying to follow along with this. It's, it's, it's a funny little line, to let the reader understand, because it's almost... Saying the opposite of what it says, it's a way of saying this is mysterious, this is something to be... just." Revelation has a similar line, this calls for discernment. Ah, now, some people when they hear discernment who have apocalyptic paranoia go, oh, does this mean this calls for end time charts? And um, websites and detailed theories about the EU and Osama bin Laden and Donald Trump and Ukraine and you know, changes every decade. There's a different version of it, and they're always sure and they're always wrong. Now that's not the point of the discernment. The point of the discernment is to actually go. This is what as this comes, you need to be ready to trust God, yeah, and be faithful to God in this time. But it's a little more than that, because um, here it, Jesus kind of squashes together three things. He kind of there's three things that people notice are, are kind of being evoked here in a apocalyptic symbol language. On one level, I think he's partly talking about his coming death. In this weird section, it's funny how many things get picked up at the end of the gospel. Keep watch. Stay alert. What does Jesus say to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? Keep watch. Stay alert. Yeah? There's the coming um, in the clouds. But, and what, what does Jesus do? He comes to the Father in his resurrection and ascension. What is the cross if not an abomination of desolation? A terrific antichrist disaster. God himself being killed. So on one level, it's an interesting passage that you can see as part of Jesus' death. In another level, you can see it as part of the end of the world. The final age, when everything finishes, there'll be final uh, rebellion against God and final rescue by God. And in between those two things, there's one other event that happened soon after Jesus' death and resurrection when the literal Jerusalem was literally destroyed. After Jesus died and rose, about 40 years later, the Romans did come to Jerusalem, smashed the whole thing to bits, tore down the temple. In AD 70 there was a desolation of the actual physical city. The temple was gone, has never been rebuilt. The city was destroyed, the Jews were scattered, an abomination. And at that point, you know what, the Christians did understand and the Christians saw it coming and they did flee. They were, they were alert to Jerusalem's days being numbered. And when they saw the writing on the wall, they fled. So that's the second chunk, 14 to 23. It's, it's written in this sort of apocalyptic language, which makes us want to sort of get out the charts and the theories. But the point is to say, Jesus' death is, a, is the beginning of the end of the world, the destruction of Jerusalem is coming soon, and the end of the world is to come. The key for us now is to trust in Jesus, stand firm, Continue to the end. Those who stand firm to the end will be saved. That's why in verses 28 to 30, Jesus can say uh, these things will happen in their lifetime. As soon as it to listen to the fig tree, as soon as the twigs are tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know the end is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Because the first of those two things, the death of Jesus, They will see it in their lifetime, that abomination and him coming to the Father and His resurrection. The second of those things will happen in their lifetime as well, the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the Old Testament age. Yeah? So that's why Jesus can say there's there's a very real sense in which this generation is seeing the beginning of the end. Which means that you and I, ever since that time, we're all living in the final phase of history. The final phase where the gospel needs to be preached. The final phase where God's people will suffer. The final phase when uh, soon he will return once for all. Verse 26, in those days, following that distress, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The earth will fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. And that time then will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He'll see his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So that's the final theme the final coming of the Son of Man. He's talking about the birth pangs. He talks about this peculiar time of trouble and then he talks about the final coming of the Son of Man. The end is still to come, he said in verse 7. The end is not the birth pangs, he said, nor is the end that abomination that crucified Jesus or the abomination that destroyed Jerusalem. Those are signs of this final end when Jesus will return and history will be wrapped up and the new creation and the final judgment will come. At that time, there is salvation for those who trust in Jesus. At that time, is condemnation for those who are not in Jesus. At that time, it's the final full stop. So what does Jesus say then? Verse 32, keep watch. Verse 32, no one knows about that day or hour, not the angels in heaven, nor the son, nor only the father, be on your guard, be alert. You do not know that time will come. It's like a man going away and he leaves his house in charge of servants, uh, tells each one to keep watch, therefore keep watch. You do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So that's, that's the application. If Jesus is coming back, be alert. Be trusting him, serving him, living for him today, tonight, tomorrow. If he brings you to 102, be trusting him, serving him, living for him when he returns. Don't give up, don't turn aside. Continue being faithful, continue serving him. One of the biggest, most common exhortations in the Bible is endure, stand firm, persevere. That's his encouragement. Even as we preach and pray, even as we build a counterculture and seek to reach our friends and serve in church, persist, endure, for he will hold on to his till the end. He will be back to bring the judgment. He will save all those who trust in him. His cursing of Jerusalem, the controversy that flares up in this final week, finally triggers this plan to have him arrested and killed. And that plan triggers his death, the abomination that's also the ransom, the propitiation, the redemption, the sacrifice of atonement, the rescue plan, the victory over the devil, the plundering of the strong man's house, the dawn of the end of the world, so that all then who trust in him enter into eternal life now as we wait for that eternal life to break through and dawn over everything when he returns. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you uh, for your promises, even for your just judgment that you're true and right, that you won't let evil and unbelief win, that you'll put things right. We ask that you make us alert and keep watch. We ask that you make us faithful and godly and fruitful, faithful servants that whether in good times or trouble we will be serving you until we die or until you return. And do help us, we pray, as we uh, think through and help these guys, I pray for them as they think and pray through what it means to be a a Christian counterculture in the world that they're serving you in, in 2023 and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.